Welcome to the 274th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from South Korea. Today, I welcome Sharif Elnahal, president and CEO of University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey, the principal academic hospital of Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. Also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 10th, 2021, there are 3,294,966 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States is 581,756 lives lost from COVID-19. In India, they're now reporting 246,146 deaths from COVID-19. Ordinarily, I would read an obituary in this time, but I'd like to move ahead to my conversation with my guest today, and I will make obituary available that I was going to read uh, for today. I'll make that available on Twitter. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest. Dr. Sharif Elnahal is an American physician who served in various healthcare leadership capacities in both public and private sectors. He was the 21st commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Health in the state of New Jersey as a cabinet official under Governor Phil Murphy. He now serves as the president and CEO of University, Health, University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey, the principal academic hospital of Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. Previously, Dr. Elnahal was appointed to the White House Fellows Program by President Barack Obama in 2015. In this capacity, he served in the United States Department of Veterans Affairs, where he co-founded the Veterans Affairs Innovation Ecosystem, a network of innovators and implementation professionals across the United States who develop and scale best practices that have improved healthcare quality, women's health, mental health, and substance treatment, and other areas, the results of which have been published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. He also served as the Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer of the Veterans Health Administration, the largest health system in America. Dr. Sharif Elnahal, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thanks for inviting me, Scott. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from, what the pandemic situation looks like there, what the vaccination situation looks like there today. Uh, thank you. So calling in from Newark, New Jersey, the community we proudly serve, uh, as well as the surrounding town in Essex County, New Jersey, and the surrounding region. Uh, we are seeing a, a much better situation with the pandemic than just several weeks ago uh, in terms of daily cases uh, and daily deaths. And so I think we're tracking across the entire country uh, and seeing around a 20 to 30% decline over the last two weeks 
uh, in cases and with deaths, a uh, certainly a plateauing, if not reduction uh, from the previous week, about five to 10%, uh, depending on the day that you look at it. And so we are seeing positive trends. I think that's entirely due as a state to the vaccination effort, given that we are up against uh, B117, the UK variant being the strongly predominant uh, variant in our state. And I think that's the case now in pretty much every region of the United States as well. And so uh, we are seeing and mirroring the national trends there in a positive way. Unfortunately, in Newark, we're not seeing uh, nearly as much vaccine uptake as the rest of the state and as the rest of the country. Only about 41% per the latest day that I saw have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine in this community and even fewer people who are fully vaccinated. And so that's a major effort that we are undertaking as the public hospital that serves the region. Uh, we just secured three mobile vans from the Department of Health uh, to bring vaccine to the community closer to where people are. That should hopefully help. We've also rerouted our vaccination strategy. We used to have six lanes uh, of uh, opportunity where people are vaccinated on our campus. Uh, we reduced that to two lanes and bringing much more of our vaccine stock into the community. And so I think that's gonna be the challenge uh, that urban communities are facing in addition to rural as well, which is also an under vaccinated area of the country. Uh, but certainly seeing that here in Newark as well. Just to follow up on that, if I could briefly, so that low percentage compared to the rest of the state of vaccine uptake, you owe that to um, just physical proximity, hard for people to actually get where they need to be to be vaccinated. I think it's an issue of equity and the fact that more people in our community uh, are uh, working people, the fact that they have to show up to work, essential workers, uh, makes it more difficult for folks to take time off to get the vaccine and then maybe another day or two off to contend with the side effects uh, of vaccines. There's also a phenomenon now where we're seeing a younger, healthier population that remains to be vaccinated. Uh, so there's a little bit less motivation, even if there isn't a problem or an issue overall with the science or the vaccines themselves. Uh, this is a overall less motivated segment of the population that we're dealing with here. And so I think, uh, again, communicating better what the uh, benefits are and the risks of inaction. As human beings, we tend to underweight the risks of inaction and overweight the risks of action. And so I think uh, a lot of that needs to be uh, better communicated and better endorsed uh, by trusted people at the local level. So if we could just go back a little bit and, and pick up a little bit of your sort of previous training and we can't, you've, you've had so many interesting positions, we can't probably pick up all of it in this conversation. But I, I did want to ask you this question, in your various roles and in your medical training, what have you done that you feel like has prepared you for this last 15 months? You know, I think it was uh, really being in the position of state health commissioner right before this. Of course, we weren't contending with COVID-19 when I was in the position. Uh, but we did have uh, situations of uh, viral outbreaks. We had measles outbreaks in New Jersey because of a largely under-vaccinated segment uh, of the state that uh, kept getting measles and spreading measles. Um, and I was working hand in hand with the New York State Health Commissioner on that issue. We also had localized facility outbreaks that were significant. There was an adenovirus outbreak that uh, really overtook a pediatric nursing home uh, in the northern part of the state. And so uh, having had issues and um, you know challenges to contend with in that position uh, was certainly helpful as a matter of perspective in dealing 
uh, and running the uh, state hospital and dealing with the pandemic in this community. And I know dealing with the opioid epidemic was one of your major areas of concern as well. Can you speak a little to, to that, how focus on that epidemic might have given you some insights and in how we might think about dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic? I think they're definitely related. The opioid epidemic was uh, probably the number one public health issue uh, when I was health commissioner and the need to mobilize the will, the funding, uh, and the uh, manpower to really respond uh, to that issue was uh, a big challenge. And it was a whole of government effort at the state to be able to contend with that. I had great colleagues in the governor's cabinet to do so, uh, but it was still difficult to integrate efforts and ultimately execute on that mission, even though we're seeing signs of progress. I think the same similar issues are in play now with COVID-19. Um, and so uh, that as a matter of just practice was similar. I also think they're related. So, you know, the diseases of despair, uh, frankly, went up significantly during the worst of the pandemic, uh, mental mm -hmm. health, behavioral health, uh, morbidities, but also drug use um, and uh, other issues like, um, you know, uh, sexual assault and, um, you know, uh, domestic abuse, all of those things unfortunately increased. Uh, during the pandemic commensurate with the need to stay home at major during major parts of it and not being able to fully integrate in uh, society again as quickly as people would have liked. And so I think we're going to be dealing with that aftermath for quite some time. Mm. Thank you for drawing out that connection. I think that's an, an important one. I guess I have sort of a, a basic question about health inequalities. It, is New Jersey facing um, worse situation there in terms of health inequality than than other states of its size. Help us understand a little bit sort of how health inequality works in a state as complicated as New Jersey. Yeah, it's a really good question. And it was something that I very much focused on when I was health commissioner. So New Jersey does boast some of the best public health outcomes in aggregate uh, in the country and in the world. Infant mortality is one of those examples. But when you have a situation where black infant mortality is three to four times higher the general population. You cannot claim victory at all uh, on that effort. So the fact is we still have uh, major areas of the state and uh, major localities where, uh, you know, things like infant mortality and black infant mortality in particular, uh, but also maternal mortality even. Uh, you don't expect as many women to die in childbirth as they still do in 2021. Um, and unfortunately, rates of death during childbirth are fourfold to fivefold higher uh, in the black uh, communities that we have in the state. And so we're in the center of that here in Newark. We do uh, a lot to try to extend access to prenatal care um, and care more generally for folks with chronic disease. Uh, these issues aren't just limited to maternity care. They're uh, frankly span the whole gamut of chronic disease uh, in terms of the disparity. And so I think the uh, fact that so many of the areas of the state are still racially segregated uh, unfortunately, it has a lot to do with this and the generations of systemic racism that led to it. Um, and so affording better access to health care and access to resources uh, in the communities that need it the most are the first most important step we need to take. I wonder if it's hard to get that argument across because what you've just been describing is something that um, I've heard some people characterize. So, well, that's not in the bounds of, of medicine. Uh, you know, you're talking about structural issues, poverty and things like that. I wonder if it's always so clear um, to policymakers and others that the, what you've just described is a situation that goes beyond just what happens in the clinic. 
Yeah, well, the, what I'll say to that is that we have no choice at University Hospital but to take a broader and broader role. Uh, the fact is the lives uh, that are in most despair and the most uh, downtrodden end up in one of two places in this community. They either end up in jail or they end up in our emergency room as the public hospital. Uh, and so we uh, really have the moral imperative uh, to do more and more for people, uh, connect them more meaningfully to social services that they already qualify for, enrolling them in health insurance, uh, housing the homeless. So we're about to announce a major partnership with a developer here to uh, create uh, 10 units of supportive housing uh, to put our sickest homeless patients uh, in them to provide wraparound healthcare services in the home in addition to a clinic that will serve the entire community, which is a voucher-supported uh, housing community from the Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development. Secretary Fudge was, ju was just here in Newark uh, visiting this community. And so uh, really happy to see that there's a lot of mobilization on this effort, but we don't have a choice. We have to do this. And uh, frankly, uh, everybody would benefit, of course, the beneficiaries, but also uh, the hospital in terms of uh, creating capacity needed to really treat acute conditions uh, rather than contend with social issues for so many patients uh, who occupy a bed. So I think the uh, value proposition is there beyond the fact that it's the right thing to do. Um, and hopefully that will spur enough support to be able to make progress on these issues. Thanks for that. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the university hospital more generally. Uh, for those who may not know or listening who may not sort of have a, a good handle on you know, what public hospitals do in, in America, how many of them there still are. I think, you know, in my own mind, I'm not exactly uh, clear what that ratio might be these days between public hospitals and other types of uh, healthcare providers. Can you tell us a little background about it? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about that because a lot of folks don't uh, tend to know what public hospitals do for them. And so a direct benefit that our public hospital does, and you'll find this as a pattern across many essential hospitals across the country is that we serve as the level one trauma center uh, where major injuries go regardless of the cause. So whether it's a car accident uh, or a gunshot wound or a stabbing or what have you, a major physical trauma comes here uh, as the level one trauma center. We have some of the best uh, surgeons and support teams uh, for them in the entire country right here in Newark uh, and in our hospital. So uh, you uh, could need us and we hope that you don't. Uh, but regardless of where you live, uh, that's an important service that we provide. And it's often the case that public hospitals serve that function. And of course, uh, the essential mission of ca caring for the most vulnerable. Uh, the fact is we have far and away the highest uh, charity care and Medicaid um, uh, payer mix, uh, far greater than any other hospital in New Jersey in aggregate. Um, and you do need safety and institutions to care for uh, the poorest and most vulnerable. Of course, we want to uh, build services that attract uh, folks of all uh, uh, payers and insurances to be able to finance and continue uh, the effort here at University Hospital. But the fact is we will always and proudly carry that mission. And you do need uh, strong public support for institutions like this to care for the most vulnerable. Uh, in a vacuum, the uh, methods of payment for patients who uh, are poor don't uh, are not enough to be able to sustain um, the hospital business or the FQHC or what have you. And so you do need uh, subsidization and you do need uh, a strong role for government funds to be able to maintain these institutions. And so we've gotten grateful to have gotten uh, more support from the state in the last couple of years. Uh, we still 
vast majority of our revenue comes from patient services. And so we still have to do everything we can to be an efficient organization. But even after you've maximized those efforts, uh, the need for state support and government support is still clear. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Dr. Sharif Elnahal, the president and CEO of University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey today. Uh, Sharif, I wonder if you could take us back to the beginning of the pandemic and maybe even when it sort of first entered your consciousness when COVID-19 um, first arrived um, on your daily brief and, and what you started having to do there to prepare the hospital for that. I remember getting a phone call, Scott, from the state health commissioner in January of last year uh, saying that there was a concern about uh, folks traveling from China when uh, at the time Wuhan was really one of the only places in the world that had uh, a major issue with this disease. And so uh, we actually quarantined the first patients suspected to have COVID-19 from incoming ships and airplanes. And so we were contending with this issue well before you had documented community spread of COVID-19 at all in the United States. And this isn't a role that is foreign to us. We've been there supporting uh, the state and all of its residents since we existed because of our role. Again, part of the role of public hospitals is to be there for emergency responses, not just locally for a single individual who gets hurt, uh, but overall uh, disaster response. So we were there at 9-11, we were there in uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, Ebola and everything in between. And so this was the next crisis that we were on the front lines uh, with dealing with. In fact, we uh, helped set up the Secaucus Field Medical Station in New Jersey, the Javits Center of New Jersey at the time. We were in the New York metro area and got hit. Uh, we were in the global epicenter at one point. And so we helped stand up that hospital. We helped coordinate transfer and management of patients across all of the hospitals in the northern region. We were assigned that role uh, by the health commissioner and by the governor. We proudly took that mantle. And we provide EMS services at baseline to the city of Newark and Newark Airport. So we do have the infrastructure uh, to be able to deal with the response more broadly than just our community. And so uh, we proudly played that role. Is it something that you had practiced for? I mean, I don't know how one practices for a pandemic of, of this scale, but what kind of preparations had gone in ahead of time to begin thinking? I mean, even just that list, you moved quite quite quickly through a list. And as, as you were saying, each one of those things, it, it sounded more complicated, each one you listed. So how, how do you prepare for those things? Uh, really funny you ask that because I often uh, try to rewind and replay how we made decisions. Uh, we couldn't rely on anybody who had experience with this because nobody alive has experience with a pandemic at this scale. Uh, the last time it happened was over a century ago. And so uh, we were really uh, looking at classic playbooks for how to potentially deal with a pandemic, but there are so many issues that come up uh, that cannot possibly be predicted. Uh, I would have never thought that we would have had to stand up a, a makeshift hospital in a convention center, uh, but we did that because the state needed to do that and they asked us for our help. Uh, and so we were right there alongside members of the National Guard. The U.S. Army Reserves had to come and assist at my hospital because my staff were so uh, thinned out and strained at the worst of the pandemic with all the call outs that was needed because our own employees were getting sick and had to contend with ill family members alike. And so uh, all of that was happening at once. And we had to uh, do what continuously learning organizations do best, which is be humble, uh, learn as you go along and make the best decisions with the information you have. And I think we did that uh, because I tried to set the right mindset from the beginning 
Uh, we have to try things. If they don't work, we have to pivot quickly. This is crisis management. It's not business as usual. And so we don't have the time to pilot and then scale or do excessive data analysis on everything we do. We have to do the right thing uh, at the time that it happens. And so I think we did emerge uh, with an overall good result. But remember that because uh, cities like New York just have a uh, worse infrastructure than um, you know places that are more wealthy uh, and all of the other reasons combined around systemic racism, outcomes were much worse overall for people of color, black and brown residents here. Uh, COVID was the number one cause of death uh, in those demographics as opposed to number three in the general population. So uh, despite everything we did because of these uh, you know, systemic issues, uh, outcomes were overall worse in Newark. Can you tell me a little bit about the types of stresses that you began to see? You mentioned your team and the essential workers um, there, the working in the hospital, who are also members of the community and who also have their families that they had to, to care for. Um, how did you approach that, even just keeping track of the kind of toll um, on the physicians and the nurses, and but also everybody who's working in the hospital system. How do you keep a handle on the stresses they were under? Yeah, it's a very important uh, point because this is, uh, as I keep saying, a uh, crisis that nobody has ever seen in their careers by definition. And so, uh, you know, it did lead to post-traumatic stress and a lot of uh, our employees, folks, some folks were scared to come to work. Uh, vast majority came to work anyway, despite being scared. Um, and so it speaks to the heroism frontline and everybody who supports them here, uh, but ultimately does take a toll. And so we set up multiple programs to be able to contend with that. We had psychosocial support uh, and counseling coming from our Department of Psychiatry to any employee who needed it. We have a very successful peer-to-peer -peer, uh, counseling program that literally brings people from your job description or not, depending on your preference, uh, elsewhere in the hospital who's gotten through a difficult period so that there can be that one-on-one -on -one identification with what folks are feeling and hearing. And none of that is influenced uh, by management at all. These are organic uh, conversations that happen uh, in a safe space. And there was also uh, virtual chaplaincy services, if that's an important part of your life as an employee or a community member. We had sessions with our chaplain uh, that were faith-oriented to help people get through this time of stress. And so we really tried to provide a menu of things that could apply to different folks. But across the board, I'll, I'll just emphasize, Scott, that you know this was a really difficult time and continues to be difficult because people are fatigued and we're already dealing with a situation of rampant burnout in the medical profession before this, let alone the pandemic. And so I think it's important to understand that workforce and the strain on the healthcare workforce remains the biggest systemic risk in American healthcare. I'm glad you put it in that context because I've been pretty worried when I see headlines that use terms like post-COVID. I, and I wonder about that, you know, your concern that when the numbers go down, which of course everyone wants that and vaccinations go up, um, that people don't somehow forget the stress and strain on the essential workforce, on health facilities um, like University Hospital. It's a, it's a bit of a catch-22 because you, you want 
you want people to be healthy, you want to get past this, but at the same time, you don't want to forget it too quickly. What's your approach going to be? Well, on the uh, whole point about not forgetting it, we have to do a, uh, as a country, a 9-11 commission style analysis of what happened on preparedness should be uh, incorporating everything from supply chain to, again, the risks on the uh, human capital and healthcare workforce um, in this country and how prepared and rather ill-prepared we were to deal with an emergency of this magnitude, uh, but also you know, how to be able to ramp up and be more nimble on things like creating new tests for new viruses that arise. And uh, the fact that we were uh, rather delayed on that compared to other developed countries, all of that will should and, and will feed into a holistic uh, analysis of what went right, what went wrong in this country's response, and very importantly, what we can do to minimize the chance of this ever happening again, which um, can be difficult as, you know, again, being humble, a practitioner of healthcare here, um, you know, nobody could have predicted COVID uh, or how COVID would evolve, but we can learn from it and minimize the chance of it happening again. Well, the federal response, it certainly is something we're going to need to know a lot more about. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how you found trusted partners you could work with in the middle of the pandemic. I, I know more about the emergency management side, and it was a little bit, um, well, terrifying, frankly, to see the administration sort of lurch from HHS to FEMA. And it was unclear, particularly last April, May, and June, I think, to a lot of people who watched this stuff closely, who was guiding the federal response. I, I wonder where you are in that context, um, in terms of interfacing with the federal government there, what agencies were helpful? Um, did you have to rely on, on your peers, maybe at the state level or in, in other cities? Who could you rely on? I think it's helpful to start with the positive aspects of the federal response. So first of all, uh, access to strategic national stockpile resources, um, including ventilators, but also PPE, that was made available to New Jersey and we were direct beneficiaries of that. So for that, I'm grateful uh, to the leadership at the time for really stepping forward on those issues. And also uh, CARES Act assistance, the fact that we had a federal emergency bill that was passed that allowed for safety net institutions and hospitals to remain open at a time when we were not only contending with the worst healthcare crisis, but paradoxically uh, also had the biggest strain on our financial performance uh, in history. And so uh, that uh, point was made as clear as possible to lawmakers and they turned around a bill quite quickly uh, signed by the president that allowed this hospital to continue moving forward. Uh, despite all the financial stress that we were facing. And so those are positive aspects that I cannot um, not mention. Um, however, the biggest issue I believe uh, that made the U.S. Uh, have worse outcomes than other developed countries uh, is the lack of a central coordinated plan. I mean, look at if you look at President Biden's White House COVID team, uh, the fact that it has representatives from uh, almost every agency that's relevant uh, I believe every agency that's relevant. The fact that it has uh, centralized folks who are focused on testing, on vaccines, on supply chain, uh, reporting up to a single COVID coordinator who reports to the president. I mean, these are things that uh, just by virtue of the organization and the whole of government approach has led to, I believe, a much better mobilization since January 20th uh, on the things that matter. And I think the results are speaking for themselves. Uh, the goal for vaccination in this country was 100 million by 100 days, and now over 200 million 
by that time frame, I mean, literally dub doubling the goals mm -hmm. in terms of performance. And so uh, I believe that really underlies a lot of the issues around delays in getting tests to states, uh, the fact that there wasn't enough testing overall, the fact that people were running out of PPE, which was unthinkable in a country with our level of wealth. Yeah. Um, all those things stem from that. I mean, that's an important point to underline there that the leadership did seem to matter. I mean, it's it's a, it's a strange thing. And we go back and, and look at this. We're actually going to see sort of two pandemics from a managerial perspective. We're going to see one that was that, you know, almost year of the Trump administration. And then whatever happens starting on January 20th, you, you've painted a really stark picture there. I, I wonder, um, I know it's no longer what your responsibility is, but you're pretty familiar with Veterans Affairs. I, I wonder what you've seen happen um, there in terms of taking care of veterans. That's an enormous health system, isn't it? It is, and it's the largest health system in the country. Um, I think, frankly, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it's been a very, very good response. Um, they not only uh, responded in creating the surge capacity and uh, you know, making sure that resources were shored up, including staff. By the way, they hired tens of thousands of additional people by truncating the time required to bring new people on. Um, and ultimately, they were able to meet the care needs of people. Not a single veteran uh, was rationed care or didn't get treatment for COVID-19 if they got it. Um, and they continue to have testing accessible to people, and they've been tremendous with vaccination. Um, and so I think this is a clear example of a public hospital system uh, really stepping up and doing amazing things uh, at a time of crisis. And so I think the next challenge uh, will be sustaining those gains and making sure that um, as many veterans as possible are brought back into the system after uh, many of them had to go to the private sector for care at the worst of it. Um, and so I think a lot of that is on the agenda of the administration and um, I think they're doing a tremendous job. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Dr. Sharif El-Nahal. Um, I wonder if you could speculate a little bit about some of the changes we might see coming out of the pandemic at public hospitals across the country and also in terms of medical education. I'd like to hear your thoughts on both of those. I think the most important issue facing public hospitals now is a sustainable access to capital. Um, you do your best in managing a hospital, making sure you're providing excellent quality health care um, with the least amount of spending possible to be able to achieve that standard, uh, to be able to maintain yourself. And so over time, uh, you're lucky if you can just break even uh, against a population, again, that has a high reliance on Medicare and charity, Medicaid and charity care. Um, and those are not high paying insurances and those are not uh, payers that are necessarily sought out by uh, private sector healthcare uh, for that reason. And so uh, ultimately, again, yes, you should be financially sustainable. And uh, we, I think we've proven that we can uh, be in the black as a public hospital uh, financially, but that's still not gonna be enough to finance a you know upgrade to your facilities, a new building what have you, and I think it uh, leads to the inequities, it has led to the inequities that you see in access to healthcare uh, in communities that have an over-reliance on Medicaid and charity care because those aren't high paying insurances. So it all feeds into uh, the lack of infrastructure that has developed over the years um, and has led to worsening of systemic racism and uh, inequities in healthcare. And so I think a national policy solution to this is really important. Um, affording healthcare as a basic human right to communities in this country, despite uh, their initial standing economically and 
um, you know, the community that they live in, the zip code they were born in. I think that's a moral imperative of this country and it's not solved yet. Medicaid expansion really helped, really helped. Uh, before I got here, uh, this place is gonna go under simply because of the fact that, you know, 30, 40% of the care here was charity care, which doesn't come to you for two years in terms of reimbursement. So, uh, but that's not the only step we need to do more uh, to maintain the healthcare safety net infrastructure. What do you see in, in terms of training uh, for nurses and for doctors? I mean, I guess one way to ask this question is if you could go back and talk to yourself as a medical student, uh, you know, what would you uh, need to know that wasn't taught uh, when, you were, when you were a student or a resident? Yeah, so first of all, I'll just make a broader point that, um, you know, remember that institutions like University Hospital are the best places to train because you see the widest array of pathology and disease. Um, and this isn't to be disrespectful at all from in terms of meeting the mission and uh, having a very high patient experience um, at this hospital, uh, but it also just affords you the ability to take care of a wider array of problems and conditions. And so as a, a national um, you know, imperative to have well-trained clinicians. We need uh, to maintain these safety net institutions. And what I would tell myself is that, you know, immerse yourself more in some of the social and systemic issues that people are facing uh, in terms of your patients, because, um, you know, to not have that background or knowledge and to probe why people are coming into the medical problem uh, from a system level would be to miss a big picture, a big part of the healthcare story of patients you're trying to serve. And so this whole idea, for example, of bringing more care uh, to the community and housing homeless individuals and uh, caring for them uh, in, in the new home that you've offered them as a, as a healthcare system. All these things are, are one of many, a few of many examples of how uh, you as a frontline clinician can be an innovator and create a better system of care for the most vulnerable. Um, and we need to do that as a country. It's not just affording the funding or access to health insurance, it's actually executing on the mission. Um, and, you know, driving toward actually delivering that care to people, which is not uh, trivial in terms of a task. Uh, we need the brightest minds looking at this and to have equity as a centerpiece um, and that historical context as a centerpiece of medical education would go a long way there. Uh, I'm glad to hear you sort of speak in those terms, but it, I mean, it sounds like in some ways a, a complete shift in the way that Americans think about what health care is. I mean, you used the phrase that it's a, it's a right, and you've talked about justice. And, and I wonder about that. I've talked to lots of guests on COVID calls about that framework and talking about, about health care and, and taking seriously public health, you know, and, and, and the kinds of boasting that we do in the United States about what we can do in terms of innovation and medical research. But then there's less or has been less to boast about maybe through this pandemic. Um, about the public health system. And so everyone in America has dealt with this now. We've all seen these inequalities. I yeah. guess um, I, there's, that's more of a comment than a question to you, just sort of underlying some of the things that, that you've said, but just to put it back to you, um, this is the moment, it seems like, if there's going to be one in our lifetime to make this case, that this is a national imperative, this is it. So I, I, I wonder, maybe I draw you out a little bit more, like how are you going to seize this moment, Sharif? It is the moment and I'm so glad that you framed it that way, Scott, because I've been saying the same thing to our employees, our community, 
this is the moment for public health and health equity to either uh, make a giant leap forward in terms of fixing some of these systemic inequities, or we can retreat back to the uh, low trust environment that vulnerable communities uh, and low trust situation in terms of how they perceive the medical establishment and vaccination is part of big part of that moment because we're telling people to suspend their disbelief and mistrust uh, in the medical establishment and take a vaccine that was developed in less than a year. And I think there are very good reasons for that. I'm strongly pro-vaccination and I've been out there telling the community to get vaccinated uh, and encouraging more and more people to do that. But the a frequent piece of feedback that I get is that, you know, listen, you know, if you can mobilize the will, the funding, the science, to all work this fast and this effectively to combat COVID-19, which happens to affect everybody, not just us. Uh, what about, you know, late stage breast cancer in black women or late stage uh, colon and rectal cancer in black people overall? Um, you know, what about chronic disease, which has plagued our community forever? And the fact that there aren't health, there isn't healthy food that's accessible to people that's affordable. Uh, these are things that it are, these are problems that are possible to solve, but there hasn't been any degree of comparable will funding and, uh, you know, effort to be able to address them. And so we can either meet that moment and start chipping away further and further at some of these systemic root causes of inequities, or we can pretend like this didn't happen and retreat back to where we were before, uh, which I believe would be very, very harmful to trust that we've tried so carefully to build with this community since the beginning of this pandemic. So I really hope it's the former. I hope that you know, the mobilization around public health by the Biden administration uh, continues. And uh, all of that remains to be seen, but I'm optimistic. We're almost up on time. Uh, just one last question for you, and this is just about the hospital itself. There's been a lot of loss uh, in the last 15 months. How are you marking that at the, at the hospital? A memorial there? Do you have some practices that you've built in, some ways to pay tribute to those who've uh, died and, and suffered during this time there at the hospital? Yeah, we now have 12 deaths from COVID-19 physicians and our employees combined. And um, it's uh, just really sad. Uh, every death um, is a reminder of the gravity of the times that we're in. Um, it also is an opportunity for us to mourn and reflect as a family here at University Hospital. And one way that we did that was to actually put uh, a tree for every, a small tree for every person who died um, and had employees write notes to uh, the person, to the deceased, to their family, and hang those notes on those trees. And we gave those trees as gifts to love the loved ones uh, of our fallen university hospital employees. Uh, and then we added, a, at the time, a 12th tree uh, for anybody who would come after that time. And uh, we're now, since we've had one additional person pass away from COVID-19, we have people hanging uh, notes on that one as well. And so, um, you know, it's something that was a small gesture, but got so much uptake uh, in addition to the shrines that we have uh, for them in our chapel, the photos and everything for people to come and reflect. But uh, we have to provide that space uh, for our UH employees to, to really uh, reflect and mourn uh, because these are folks who uh, made it easier to get by and were just uh, such incredible colleagues and loved ones of people here. 
uh, historians are listening and, and um, I'm sure some of them are making notes right now and saying that the documentation project of what you've been doing there at University Hospital this last year of the pandemic is an important one uh, and it's such a crucial story to tell. Thank you so much for uh, talking about those who were lost in that process of memorialization. It's really moving. Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guest, Dr. Sharif Elnahal, President and CEO of University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey. Sharif, thanks for making time. I know you're extremely busy and for these insights that you shared today. I learned a lot. Thank you. My pleasure, Scott. And thank you for doing these sessions. They're really informative. Take care. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. <laughs>